1975, director Steven Spielberg and star Roy Scheider gave the world a tale of a thrilling chase of an elusive aquatic foe. In 2022, we return to Scotland to kick off season six. The film is Jaws. The whiskey is Highland Park 12 year. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we kick off season six with the one-time highest grossing film ever, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. How many times are we going to say Steven Spielberg in this in this episode, Bob? We should have said an over-under on saying this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it now because I'm going to edit this episode, so I'll, I'll hear it. I'm going to say we, we're going to do 56 Spielbergs. 50. I'll take the under on that. All right. I'll let you know. Spielberg, Spielberg, Spielberg. <laughs> so welcome into season six, Film and Whiskey Nation. If, you are, if you're new to the podcast, here's what the podcast is about. I grew up a huge movie nerd. Uh, I met my friend Brad in college, and we went we went through college together. We went to seminary together, and while we were in grad school, we started talking about, hey, whiskey's really good. You know what goes really good with whiskey? <laughs> Movies. We should make a podcast about this because I found out Brad hadn't seen a lot of really classic, well-regarded movies. And that's how we got to this point. We are six seasons in. Brad, it feels very weird to say that. I got to be honest. Yeah, I I was actually just thinking, I don't know if I've ever shared the story of like the first time I remember drinking whiskey while watching a movie. But I I was in college, uh, undergrad. I was definitely actually not being sarcastic. I think I actually was over 21. Uh, I was going through a really bad breakup and I was hanging out with my buddy and we watched Rocky and we drank like not it was I don't even know if you could call it whiskey. It's the liquor area of the grocery store that isn't actually liquor. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, like like the, the Southern Comfort section? Yes. We had whiskey from that section and like a cheap cigar from next to it. And we we smoked a cheap cigar and we drank cheap whiskey and we watched Rocky. And it was one of the best nights of my life. And, and I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the first time I remember watching uh, watching a movie while drinking whiskey. That is the epitome of started from the bottom. Now we're here. <laughs> now we're at the top. Now baby. we're at season six watching Jaws. <laughs> Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Dude, Steven Spielberg is just a freaking champ, Bob. All right, so we're kicking off season six where we will be reviewing four, is it four? Four Steven Spielberg movies. Uh, Just to give a quick rundown of what season six is going to be like, we're kind of theming our seasons now. And this season, we're going through directors that have a few films that are still huge blind spots for us in terms of reviewing them on this show. So we're revisiting some films from Spielberg, from Scorsese, all the way through newer filmmakers like Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright. We're going to go back and look at David Lean, and then we're going to end the season with a listener pick. Cue everyone Googling who David Lean is. (laughs) (laughs) That's unfortunate, but probably true. So when we get to 100% true. 
So when we get to the end of the season, there will be four directors that you, Film and Whiskey Nation, can choose from to wrap up these mini-series of directorial features. I'm really excited to get into this, man, and we have to start talking about Jaws. Uh, But before we get there, if you are a fan of the podcast or if you are joining us for the first time, we're glad to have you on board. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe on your listening platform. We would really, really love a five-star review. It helps get film and whiskey in front of more eyes and ears. And if you're really feeling generous, you can go over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash filmwhiskey where you can support us at three different levels, a three, a five, and a $7 tier. You get tons of bonus content. You get access to a members-only Discord server that we're on every single day. We would love to see you there on Patreon. Brad, you know what time it is now, man. (laughs) It's time for America's favorite segment, which we like to call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, this was not your first experience with Jaws, was it? It was not. Uh, However, I just watched Jaws for the first time maybe seven or eight months ago with a group of friends. Oh, that's really funny. I feel like I just watched it with my wife like six or seven months ago. And it, it wasn't my first time seeing it, but it was her first time seeing it. So we probably watched it around the exact same time and are revisiting it together now. Yeah, I am really excited to talk about it. It was kind of fun to to watch it so close together. Uh, you know, normally I would say people probably don't watch movies unless you're like going to see it twice in theaters. Uh, you don't normally watch movies that close together. So to have watched it a few months back and then to watch it again just uh, last night and actually this morning I finished it at 5 a.m. Yeah, the perfect uh, time for finishing films. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it kind of worked out perfectly, though. Uh, I think my Brad Explains will probably be about 28, 29 seconds about the first movie that's in Jaws and then about 31 yep. seconds about the second movie that's in Jaws because <laughs> yep. that's about the time. I would say that's about the percentage of time each movie takes up within this film. Absolutely. All right. So we put 60 seconds on the clock. Brad has to explain the plot of the movie and go. Amity is a small town in the New York, Boston-ish, northeast coastal area. Martha's Vineyard. In the Martha's Vineyard area. Uh, It's a nice little coastal town that makes all of its money in about a two-month span in July and August when all the people come out to the beach. Uh, There's a new sheriff in town who finds out about some shark attacks that are happening, and he is fighting with the locals about trying to shut down the beaches so that nobody else dies. Uh, But the mayor is a D-bag and wants the economy to not die, which, you know, is 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 kind of important, too. Uh, And then when they realize they can't do that, they get on a boat with an old drunk sailor uh, and the sheriff who hates the water is paired up with a college oceanic institute kind of guy and an old drunk fisherman. And they chase down the shark and... And things happen. <laughs> they, they certainly do. <laughs> not not only was it a Brad Explains, it was also like a Brad teases a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That, that was nice. That. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you for man. not giving away all of the spoilers in the movie. Yeah, I was going to say, in uh, explaining what our podcast is, Bob, you didn't mention that like from the moment the podcast starts, there could be spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who who can forget when we kicked off the sixth sense with the, with the words <laughs> Bruce Willis was dead. 
the whole time. Everyone dies. <laughs> All right, man, let's get into talking about Jaws. Here's the thing about Jaws. I feel like we could spend as much time talking about the stories and the lore and the legend surrounding the movie and the it's cultural a, a impact. wild, wild movie. Yeah, and like the cultural impact that this movie had as we do talking about the movie itself. So I want to try to get as many of our thoughts about the movie into this first half of the episode so that when we come back from our whiskey break, we can talk about the cultural impact of the movie. So you go ahead and steer us, Brad. Where would you like to start today? I think I do kind of want to start by talking about the the two movies. And, you know, we can talk about the actors in this movie. I think the main one that you see throughout the entire film is uh, Roy Scheider. I think his performance is just, it ties the entire movie together for me. Yeah. Roy Scheider is a fantastic actor, and he was in some of the most famous and still well-remembered movies of the 70s, but I feel like as an actor, he has, I don't want to say he's been forgotten, but he hasn't been remembered the way he should. You know, like, we don't talk about De Niro and Pacino and Robert Duvall and Jack Nicholson and Roy Scheider, but we should. I mean, like, he was in The French Connection before this. He made this movie. He makes Marathon Man the next year, which is a really great movie that I think might be my favorite Roy Scheider performance. He's nominated for an Oscar uh, at the end of the 70s for all that jazz. Just a really versatile and understated actor, too. I think that's the thing is, like, he could play the tough guy in The French Connection, and then he comes into this movie, and he's playing kind of like the... Uh, I don't know. What's what's the phrase like beleaguered like? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's just getting beat up from all angles by he's everybody. He's out of his element. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And he does it so well. Yeah. I, I love the way he portrays somebody who has a general good idea of what they're supposed to be doing, but they're so battered from so many different angles by so many different forces that he's just like try. uh Here's your first water pun of the day. He's trying to keep his head above water. Yeah, there it is. See, see what I did there? So I watched the movie Marathon Man for the first time last year. And forgive the brief, like the, the little excursion here into Marathon Man. But that's a movie that Dustin Hoffman is the main actor. And he plays like a grad student who finds out basically that his brother is like a spy. And he gets embroiled in this this whole thing with Nazi neo-Nazis and everything else. And Roy Scheider plays his brother, who is the spy. And Roy Scheider in that movie is like the most suave, debonair, like it, it's night and day from who he plays in Jaws. And I watched that movie and I was like, oh, my gosh, like Roy Scheider sex symbol, question mark. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> he's like he's wearing these really dapper suits and then he gets in a fight with his shirt off and he's like really cut. And I'm like, okay, Roy, like, there you go. But all I knew him from was Jaws. And in this movie, he's like, he's the middle class dad that doesn't really know how to speak up for himself in a lot of situations until things come to a head. And I think he plays that kind of like beaten down role just as well as he does anything else. Yeah. And I think you have some some important supporting roles for him. Uh, I think that his wife does an incredible job of like keeping him steady and and you you can kind of tell where his i don't know where where his level-headedness comes from and that like he feels safe when he's at home and i think that that like part of the story gives you a really important element of like why he's doing what he's doing 
Because if not for his home and his children and his wife, you wouldn't understand why he's so adamant about protecting the lives of the other people on the island. But you kind of understand that he wants to protect what he has for everyone else. And that's why it's so meaningful when, you know, the uh, the kid who dies, Alex, it hurts him so much when the, the mother who looks like she's 70 years older than the child comes up and slaps him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, man, let's finish out these main performances. Let's talk about Richard Dreyfus, who doesn't really come into the movie until, I'd say, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes into the movie. And Richard Dreyfus is really funny because I think he's always looked like he's at least 40 years old, but he's 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 supposed <laughs> to be like 25 in this movie. Uh, and this came out two years after American Graffiti, where he was supposed to be playing like 18 and looked like he was 38 in that movie, too. I love Richard Dreyfus, and I think that he is also like, you know, as the years go by, kind of being forgotten as the great actor that he is and not talked about enough. The great thing about Dreyfus in this movie is that he brings both like all the gravity to the situation because everyone is kind of crapping on Sheriff Brody. And then this guy from that's like a, you know, a, a oceanographic researcher comes in and he's like, this thing is an eating machine and you are not taking this seriously enough. And I think that's when everyone around town is like, oh, crap, like this is for real. So he brings that. But he also brings the levity. All of the jokes in this movie come from Richard Dreyfus, and his comic timing is so good. And I don't think that there's a better example of that than the autopsy scene where the girl who gets eaten in the cold open of the movie, which we'll talk about in a little bit, they they reveal the bits of her body that they have recovered and they never show it, but they just keep the camera on Dreyfus's face as he's trying to figure out what attacked this girl. And there are two ways to watch that scene. There's a way to watch that scene where like I'm in the movie theater and I'm already scared and I'm watching this guy's face for validation that my fears are justified because he like, he can't handle what he's seeing, but it's also really darkly funny because of the way that he delivers it. He's like looking at her and he's like, uh, there's not much of the body left. Can I have a glass of water, please? <laughs> and it's like, it's the way he phrases it where you're like, oh, this is really bad. But Dreyfus is so good at the delivery of those lines that lighten things up just enough throughout the film. See, I, I think I, I actually took that moment a little differently. I think that Spielberg uses that moment as an incredible uh, opportunity for character development mm -hmm. because when when that scene opens and they first like reveal the remains, you see him like shiver a little bit. Yeah, and at first you think, oh, he like he's mortified by what he sees. But then when he gets into it, the moment he asks for water and you hear like the earnestness in his voice as he's describing what's happening, you realize, oh, he's not scared or like, you know, grossed out by what he sees. He's excited. Yeah. And I think that like it's a really cool, subtle move, you know, by the writers, by the way Spielberg directed Dreyfus as an actor that you get to see into his brain what he wants to see, what he is excited about. He's not grossed out by human remains. He's excited to see a really cool shark. And that like tells you everything you need to know about his character. I think Dreyfus is my favorite performance in the movie. And it's because of things like that, where we just gave three different interpretations of 
what he's doing in that scene. And I think they're all actually true. I don't think it's like, oh, I saw it this way. You saw it this way. I think that he's just giving a layered enough performance that he's giving the audience whatever they need in that moment. Like if you need a laugh, you can have a laugh there. If you need to feel justified in your terror, you can get that there. If you're looking for a moment of like a pause and character development, you can get that there. And with his character in particular, when he gets scared, you know things are for real. Like towards the end of the movie when they're on the boat and they have put three barrels into this shark and Robert Shaw is saying like it can't go under with three barrels and then it starts pulling them out to sea and Roy Scheider's like calling to him like, have you ever seen one of them do? And he just interrupts him and he's like, no. And you can tell he's losing his cool because he's so terrified down to his core. Like the moment before he gets into that cage at the end of the movie, they don't they don't cut to a close up or anything. And you kind of have to listen for it in the sound mix. But he just starts like hyperventilating. He's like really breathing heavy. And you're like, oh, I can tell how scared this guy is. It's just it's such a great performance because he he lends that gravity to everything that's going on. And I know you said we weren't going to get into, you know, the making of the movie. But I will say as we get into Robert Shaw, he was famously just piss drunk the entire <laughs> filming of this movie. So here's the thing, and, man. I really like Robert Shaw. And we dude, talked about he's him. So good. We talked about him when we did The Sting, and he's great in The Sting, too. And he came off of that movie and uh he didn't like the book Jaws. And we'll talk a little bit about like how the script differs from the book, too. But he didn't like the book. He didn't want to do the movie. And he was really encouraged by his wife to do the movie. And he basically said, the last time my wife was this adamant that I take on a movie was uh, from Russia with Love, the James Bond movie that he was in. And he said, and she was right then. And so I'm going to do it. And then he takes on what would become his most famous role here. He's so good. And yet I have to say, like, this character is is not a real human being. Right. Like, no. this is not a real person. This is like like the the guy that dresses like a pirate in episodes of SpongeBob that they just like plucked out of there and put him in this movie. Yeah, I I mean he he's a Captain Ahab-esque character, right? Yeah. Like like he is just this legendary fisherman that also, you know, as they're hunting this giant shark, oh by the way, he was on the USS Indianapolis yeah. that went down and had all their, you know, crewmen get eaten by shark pretty much. Like he he is very obviously like a platonic ideal of a crusty old fisherman and I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I think he, he just adds, he's like darkly funny in moments uh, when, you know, I, I love the way Spielberg uses the, my, my fair Spanish ladies song mm -hmm. that he initially sings it as a way to, you know, kind of scare off um, deputy Brody's wife but it becomes this meaningful song halfway through. And then by the end of the film, it's like his his adieu to life yeah. almost like yeah. it's it's just darkly good in every way. And that's why you hire Robert Shaw, because that scene at nighttime, you know, under deck in the boat where they're all getting drunk and they're finally bonding and they're sharing stories. And then he finally goes into like, this is what it's like to be face to face with a great white that is like an uninterrupted, I don't know, four minute monologue that he gives. And it's the best scene in the movie, Brad. Like it's it's so it's, good. And it is like it's chilling the way he delivers that. It's spectacular. And then Spielberg follows it up immediately by like 
he doesn't let the tension go. You know, like we've talked about this with Tarantino, like trying to stretch that rubber band as far as you can without letting it snap. Mm-hmm. I think Spielberg masters it in that scene because you have the emotional tension ratcheted up, you know, by the the monologue that Shaw gives. And then the action tension ramps up with the shark attacking the boat right afterwards. And I, I just, man, we've talked about the actors, Bob. I think we should probably mention the mayor a little bit as well. But I'm just going to say it. Spielberg is just always so good in what he does. Yeah, let's talk about the mayor's character. Uh, like, I don't think it's that necessary to talk about it. I do love that this movie... It lets the mayor off the hook a little bit. I don't want to say it lets him off the hook, but like people talk about the mayor from Jaws as like this classic movie villain and he's like driven by greed and he he is and he's clearly trying to like brush things under the rug. But when it gets to the point where they're in the hospital together after, you know, Roy Scheider's son has, Mm -hmm. has he's in shock and he looks at him and he's smoking a cigarette and he's just kind of shaking and he says like my kids were out there too, man. And and in that moment, you get the humanity and it 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 takes the like political element out of the movie enough that you're like all right this is not the enemy here like there's something bigger out there that yeah. we need to focus on as the audience and that the movie needs to get back to and i really love that touch honestly yeah and i i will say I, i'll i'll be the 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 devil's advocate here i actually like i understand his point of view you know like well, when sure. it comes down to it like you understand that if they call shark and there's not actually a legit threat, they lose all of the money that the local islanders make in a year. Mm-hmm. You know, like they probably make 80% of their yearly income in those two months. And so I like on a they obviously make him uh what's that phrase you like to use, Bob? Chewing the scenery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he like he gives a pretty hammy performance, right? But I on a on a philosophical level, I understand where he's coming from. But, you know, he definitely takes it a little too far. All right. I do want to talk about other elements of the movie my, before the direction, too, because we're going to talk about Spielberg. But from a scripting standpoint, Brad, this movie very famously was kind of made in the edit. Super troubled production. And Spielberg doesn't know what to do and they pull it out of their butts and it's like the best edited movie of all time. And it's like it catapults Spielberg to superstardom. But I think because of that, like it is so pared down and there is so little fat on this movie that I'm going to say something that sounds like the, the most snooty thing I'll ever say. But like, is it possible this movie is like too perfect? Do you know what I mean? This movie is always held up, especially by like film critics as Steven Spielberg's best movie ever. Like to this day, there are a number of people who would argue this is Spielberg's best. And and it's because there's just no fat on this thing. But I think that there are moments in this movie where I could have really used some fat on this thing. Like I could have used a little bit more character development. I could have used a little more uh, explanation of things because, for example, the townspeople really seem nonchalant about the number of people that are getting eaten. Do you know what I mean? Like they're and they really joke about it way before it's cool to joke about it. Like a little boy gets eaten in front of our eyes in a very horrifically brutal way, which which I'm not sure like we needed all that. But, you know, that's beside the point. 
And we cut to the next scene and it's like a day and a half later. And they're like, ah, and they're like po posting signs about him. <laughs> and they're like, ah, too soon, too soon. And they're winking at each other and elbowing each other. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you people? Like there's, <laughs> there's multiple dead people in your town that you know are getting eaten. I just, I don't understand like the, the way that we are supposed to expect that not only are they like brushing it under the rug for the sake of their economy, but that they also just truly don't care that people are just dying left and right. Yeah. And like the fact that everybody's like, oh, it's just some random girl. And I'm like, yeah, but you like made a point to say it was before the season opened. Like this is the the first girl who dies is a teenage girl on your island. Yeah, she's like, a local. I feel like you you all would have known her, <laughs> known her family like this is a horrific thing that is happening on your island. Well, Bob, like, I'm 100 percent with you. At least two people have died. And then we cut to that scene where it's like Sheriff Brody and his wife up on their their porch talking and they're like looking down at the deck and their kids are just like out in a boat. Yeah. Next to and then they're, they're like they're near the dock. But he's like, hey, get out of that boat. And his wife's like, what are you talking about? Like, they're just in a boat. Yeah. It's like, no. <laughs> Have you have you not been understanding what's going on to this point? That people are dying. That does give you the funny line though, where she like looks at the picture of the shark ramming the boat, and then she like screams out, "Get out of the boat!" Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which even that is like a good little foreshadowing of you know the second half of the movie. So yeah, I do think that there are like some kind of dumb leaps in logic in this movie but the the nice thing about it is that they lead to really brilliant moments of cinema uh it gets to the point where like it's the fourth of july and we're not closing the beach and the mayor is like walking down the beach and he goes up to the one guy and he's like hey crony of mine why are you not in the water and the guy's like whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and he gets just, up i just put on some suntan lotion he gets up and they start to walk in the water and you get that incredible shot of his whole family holding hands as they like march towards certain doom. And it's like, none of this is how this would actually work in real life. <laughs> but when you're in a movie theater and this is what's being shown to you, you're like, Oh my God, like this is the most profound thing I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, I don't think the script is always amazing, but Spielberg always uses it as an opportunity for amazing filmmaking. Uh, Bob, I will say you, you talked about it not having any fat on it. I actually came away from this second viewing thinking to myself, this movie's about 20 minutes too long. Mm. Like, I like I think that there's actually a decent amount of fat on the second half of the movie, especially. I think that this should be like an hour and 52-minute movie instead of a two-hour and 10-minute movie. All like, right. I, I just really struggled with how long the second half dragged on. All right. I'm ready to have this conversation because... We're in season six, man. People know what we think of movies. I, I like to think that we've established our credentials to this point. I have bit. some hot takes about Jaws. And a lot of a lot of this is generational. And I'll say that because uh, one, one of my favorite film podcasts is a, a, it's called Film Spotting. We've had the host Josh Larson on here before, and they ranked their Spielberg movies a few years back. And they both love Jaws. And these are guys that are in their 40s. And they talk about Jaws versus Jurassic Park and how they know that like their kids like Jurassic Park more than Jaws. And those are two movies that are very comparable, you know, in Spielberg's catalog. And I grew up with Jurassic Park. And so I know that I'm predisposed to like Jurassic Park better. But I really do think after seeing Jaws as many times as I have now and, and trying to 
understand why people think it's a perfect movie. I walk away almost every time thinking like, no, Jurassic Park's just a better movie. And I think this movie sets the template. And we'll talk about that more in the second half. Like it sets the template for what a summer blockbuster is supposed to be, but it also sets the template for how a summer blockbuster is supposed to be paced and edited. And I think that it's a really good example of something being done for the first time. It is a watershed moment in movie history, but I just don't think it's a perfect movie. No, I, Bob, I'm with you. I, I kind of teased that a little bit before. I, I think this movie is just a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. I think that there's moments of chasing the shark that just kind of get repetitive. Yeah. Where it feels like you're kind of rehearsing the same thing that happened already over and over again. And there's a part of me that's like, all right, guys, like, I understand this is a this is a really cool shark. It's bigger than any other shark you've ever seen in your life. Let, let's get to the point. Like, let's get to the point. You know, let's get to the moment where they're paddling their way back on the wreckage of the ship. Yeah. Like, like that is a cathartic, important moment of the movie, and it takes forever to get there. I also am just curious, Bob. Like, do you feel like the end of the movie kind of pays off the first half of the movie? Yeah. Because for me, it feels like the first half of the movie just suddenly ends. Yep. And then you don't really get any sort of like payoff for having watched, you know, the Sheriff Brody fight off all these stupid islanders for for like 50, 60 minutes. It's very weird how like bifurcated this movie is, right? Like it's it's two halves and they are two different movies. And I you kind of forget that when you're just thinking about like the big moments in Jaws. But you sit down to watch it again, and it ends up being the result of the fact that, like, Spielberg really liked the part of the book Jaws where they go out and chase the shark. But he didn't like a lot of the subplots and the world building before that. And so he told the author, Peter Benchley, like, I'll direct your movie if you can basically let me write my own first half of the movie, and then I'll be super faithful to it once they go out to chase the shark. And that's that's kind of what happens here. But what you get in the first half of the movie is really like Spielberg lays down the template for what would become the slasher movie. Halloween doesn't come out for three more years after this. But if you think about it, I mean, it is like these it's a series of vignettes of like setup where someone's out after dark and they shouldn't be. The killer comes and chases them down and someone dies. And then you go to the next scene where people find out what happened and it's daytime. And then when the sun sets again, the shark comes out. You know what I mean? Like it it really does follow the beats that we would come to expect with like a horror killer movie. And then halfway through, they're like, all right, we're going to take the fight to the shark. And it becomes this very different, even like thematically, like the John Williams score changes drastically that you get this kind of like nautical seafaring music that makes it adventure. Yeah. It makes it sound like an adventure. And it really like as much as we love John Williams and as much as this is a great score, He brings back that kind of like whimsical music, even at the very end of the movie where they're where they're chasing it down for the very last time right before it kills one more person and then gets blown up. And and it doesn't really work for me. Like you've built it up as like this really terrifying killer. And then when you go to chase it, it's playing music that sounds like it could be in like, you know, the great escape or something. Bob, honestly, it sounds like we're about to give our final scores and <laughs> we need to drink some whiskey. Yeah. And I that that's about the best segue I can come up with because uh, I'm with you, dude. I am with you on everything you're saying. If there's anything 
I don't ever want to do in this podcast. It's bad mouth my boy John Williams. But I will say I'm I'm with you. The the score felt a little bit weird at points in this movie. But in order to deal with that travesty of a statement I just made, I need to drink whiskey. I think we're losing listeners left and right with our hot takes today. But let's see if we can reel them back in with this <laughs> Highland Park 12. Brad, what do you say? Let's get to it. Lately, I've been finding myself pulling whiskeys off the shelf that are consistently unique, uh, ones that tell a good story every time I pop the cork, and I have to say that Doc Swinson's is absolutely top tier when it comes to a fascinating pour. What separates Doc Swinson's from the rest of the pack is their unrelenting goal of always letting the whiskey shine. No matter what whiskey comes through the front door at Doc's, their team of tasters will blend and finish it into something that is deliciously memorable. The beautiful thing about a good blended whiskey is that oftentimes, with proper care and attention, they turn into a whiskey that is truly greater than the sum of their parts. Whether you're trying their Alter Ego, Blender's Cut, or Exploratory Series, you are guaranteed to have a phenomenal experience with Doc Swinson's whiskey. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. All right, today we are checking out Highland Park 12-year. Highland Park, one of the most famous brands of whiskey. They did a huge redesign a few years back where they really made everything kind of Viking-themed. They are from an area of Scotland up in the north of Scotland called Orkney. They are one of only two remaining distilleries on Orkney, and they are by far the biggest one. The 12-year single malt that we are drinking today, Brad, is probably their most popular product. It's a really good entry point into Highland Park. This is a peated scotch, but from what I understand, it's more lightly peated. I have not sampled this yet, but I got a text from Brad, uh, I don't know, two hours ago that was like, hey, man, have you tried the Highland Park yet? And I said no. And he said, it's a good start to the season. So yeah. you've got me uh, pretty excited for what's in my glass right now. Yeah, I think that uh, on the nose, you get these incredible like chocolate mint. Mm, uh, I can there's see that. cinnamon. It's malty, it's rich and decadent. I just, I was really blown away by this. It, it really reminded me of like when I make uh, dark chocolate hot chocolate and then I throw like a peppermint Hershey kiss in it. Like that is the nose that I got here. I, I'm going to give it a nine out of 10 on the nose, Bob. Remember that thing that was going around a couple years ago that was like, if you heard it one way, it sounded like Yanny. And then if you heard it the other way, it sounded like Laurel. And everyone was arguing about what it was. It was I'll, I'll share it with you later. It was a like, sound like clip. a blue dress, black yeah, dress yeah, yeah. thing. But it was more of like you can hear it both ways, whereas the, the dress was like, no, you're just wrong. It's this way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm smelling this. And the first nosing I take, I'm like, oh, this is caramel popcorn. This is caramel corn, 100 percent with some like smoky scotch notes on the back of it. That's really cool. And then you said chocolate mint. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a thin mint with some really scotchy mm -hmm. notes in the background. So it's really cool. I feel like you can go at this a bunch of different ways. But what that means is that it's super approachable. I did get notes of buttered popcorn and caramel. I also got notes of chocolate and mint. And underneath all that is this really nice kind of saline and uh, a little bit of peat. And it's super duper approachable. I'm going to give this an eight and a half on the nose. And then you get into the taste, Bob. I The palate on this jumps way off from where you were at on the nose. And for me, it was like cured meats, 
um, like a, a sprig of fresh mint and then a lot of like really good saline notes. I love this stuff, Bob. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the palate. This is really nice because it's it's just super smoky, but it never goes bitter. And I wouldn't say that it's sweet either, but there's just enough sweetness on it to keep it from tipping bitter. Like it it just it it acts like a layer on your tongue to keep things from getting like too overly smoky. If you're not a fan of peated scotch, this is a really nice place to start. I don't know that there's a lot of complexity on the palate here, but a little bit of that sweetness does carry through and it helps with the smoke here. I think I'll give it a seven and a half on the palate. Yeah. And then the finish there, you get a lot of that peat, but it's not overwhelming in any way. And for me, it ended with all sorts of nice pepper, leather, and tobacco notes. I'm going to stick it in eight and a half on the finish, Bob. I love this whiskey. Yeah, I think your notes here are spot on. Uh, Tobacco for sure. Leather for sure. I'm going to give it an eight as well. And I think this is a good place to point out that this is only, what, 86 proof, right, Brad? Yeah, it is 43% ABV. This thing packs a punch for where it's coming at on proof point. I I am, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. This is a damn good whiskey, Bob. Yeah, I'm pretty blown away. And this is something that I think Scotch still has a leg up on, uh, you know, American whiskey with, is that they manage to be able to water it down so much in the bottle, but it's still so potent and packs so much flavor. Like, if this was an 86-proof bourbon, I don't think it could have as much character as this has on it. And again, like, it's been aged for 12 years, so you would expect that. But you, I would never know this was 86-proof. The alcohol is still very present. Like, it's very warming on the way down. I'm really, really impressed with this, Brad. I think I'm actually going to raise my balance score up to a 9 out of 10. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on balance. And then we go into our value category. Now, if you're new to the podcast, we give all of our whiskeys four scores based on what's in the bottle. But we always want to finish with a value score. You know, if this was priced $180 per bottle, it would probably get like a two out of 10 on value, which would really affect the final score. However, Bob, in the state of Ohio, God's promised land of this world... Uh, you can get a bottle of Highland Park 12 for $55. Okay. And I I think that is spectacular value in the world of single malts. I think the only thing that would like keep me from being on board with that is that I do, like just in my mind from what I've tasted here today, I'm still thinking of this as entry-level scotch. And we've had entry-level scotches that are in this price point before. There's nothing wrong with the $55 quote-unquote entry-level but if this was like $45, I think I'd give it a 10 out of 10. At 55, I'm like, okay, there are other flavor profiles that I would like to start exploring at this price point that I might like a little more than this. I think I'll give it an 8 out of 10 on value, but that's more just because of my personal preference. Like, I still think it is a very good value, but at $55, I might opt for a bottle of something else. Yeah, I, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on value, Bob. I really think this is a great value, partially because of its you know its price point of fifty five dollars, but largely because I think this is one of the most approachable peated whiskeys we have ever drank on the podcast, and so I I'm all in on this bottle. I'm coming to a total of forty four out of fifty. I'm coming out to a forty one 
out of 50. So we're both over the 40 mark, which is a big deal on this podcast. That's bringing us to an 85 out of 100 combined or a 42.5 out of 50. Brad, you were right, man. Off to a good start with season six. I would, yeah. I would recommend buying. I would recommend trying at a bar. It's just a darn good dram. Yeah, I th- I think this is an absolute banger to start the season off with. And I think we need to get back into the banger that is Jaws. Let's get to it, Brad. All right, everybody. That was Highland Park 12, a whiskey that Bob and I just really have fallen in love with. And it, I will say, after if you go back and listen to season five, you may as well have called season five the season of scotch because we drank a lot of it. Yeah. So I would say that that 42.5 out of 50 that we averaged, that's a that's a pretty impressive uh, place after all the scotch we've drank, Bob. For sure. But we are back talking about Jaws, and we are going into my personal favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. I can't wait because I'm actually going to start keeping score. My, my record right. will not be uh, trifled with <laughs> this time around. Uh. I hey man, we can go back and listen. We we should uh, task our intern to go back and listen and and get the uh, scores from last season. Right. All right, Brad. Two facts <laughs> and a falsehood. Where Brad makes up something, and I have to guess which one is incorrect. Hit me with your three supposed facts, Brad. All right. Fact number one: the name of the child who dies, Alex Kintner, was based off a bully of Spielberg in his childhood. <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope Spielberg was it just in his true. seat like, yeah, F you, Alex Kinder. <laughs> <laughs> you deserved that. Uh, fact number two, Steven Spielberg is not only a moderately talented director, he also played first clarinet uh, for the beach scene in the, in the orchestra. Hmm. Fact number three, Brody's dog in the movie was actually Steven Spielberg's real dog, whose name is Elmer. I mean, I don't think his name still is Elmer, is it? Unless well, he's the oldest dog ever. <laughs> probably was <laughs> Elmer, Bob, but I didn't want to be a downer. Oh, man. You know, it's funny. I forget that a dog gets eaten in this movie. Dude, that's like another thing I wanted to bring up. Like, the dog is just like kind of chilling, and then there's and then like gone. all sorts of other horrific things that you see, but Spielberg's like, you know where we're going to draw the line? <laughs> We're not showing a dog getting eaten. <laughs> Spielberg was one of those early adopters of like, my pets are my children. I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't show a dog getting eaten. Little kids, that's fine. Brad, I have oh, no idea. Man. These are all real. Like giving you three weeks off in between seasons to prepare was Dude, the best thing was, that could have happened. I was ready, man. Um, I'm going to say two is the falsehood. I just can't see John Williams letting Spielberg sit in with the orchestra. That is a phenomenal guess, Bob, but you are wrong. Oh. That is that is the truth. Wow. Spielberg actually played first clarinet for that one uh, orchestral piece. All right. Which was the falsehood? Uh, the name of the child who dies, Alex Kintner, was not ah, actually based man. off of a bully. I was really hoping it was. <laughs> I, I know. I, I that's when I came up with it. I was like, I think Bob's gonna just want this to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it was the thing that kicked me off with that like train of thought about Alex Kintner was a fact that I found that uh, the woman who plays the mother of Alex Kintner, who slaps you know um, uh, Scheider in the face, 
she was like going out to eat in the Boston area. And on the menu, she saw a sandwich called the Alex Kintner sandwich. And she like pointed it out to the waitress and was like, hey, I played his mother in the movie Jaws. And the owner of the restaurant came out and it was the kid who played Alex Kintner and they hadn't seen each other since the filming of the movie. What? Isn't that wild? That is wild. <laughs> like, like, what are the chances? But yeah, they, they like met just randomly because she saw his name in the, in the, in the menu of his restaurant. <laughs> that is hilarious. All right, Brad. So I said earlier that we were going to talk about like the impact of the movie before we get there. Like, let's just talk a little bit about Spielberg's direction of this movie, because it, it is really tied to the production of the film. So famously, the shoot of this movie was a disaster. And I don't know. We don't have to get super into it, because if you know anything about Jaws, like you already know a lot of this, like the mechanical shark never worked and it wouldn't come up out of the water. And this went way, way over budget and way, way too long. And Spielberg had never shot on location like this, especially on the ocean. Like, very famously, he talks about how he didn't know that, like, when you're on a boat and if you're, like, anchoring the camera to the boat, then the camera is at the mercy of the boat going up and down on the waves. And so the horizon is <laughs> the horizon line is always off between shots because in one shot it's up on a wave and in the next shot it's down on a wave. And so they had to figure out how to do that. And this was a huge learning experience. And no one trusted that this kid Spielberg could get it done. Obviously, he did. But I think, you know, this is the classic example of a movie where it's like necessity is the mother of invention, right? Because they don't show the shark for the first whatever the hell, 45 minutes of the movie, probably longer than that, probably more like an hour, because it's when they get out to see that they, they really show it. It sets the template for like how to do a reveal of the big bad. And this is something that he carries over into Jurassic Park in 93. Like they don't show the T-Rex until it's time for the T-Rex to come out. And when the T-Rex comes out, it's like, OK, like this is what we're dealing with now. It's just so cool that like the fact that they couldn't get this robot shark to work correctly ends up impacting cinema in, in such a huge way. But it's not just that, like there are little things all throughout this movie that 50 odd years later we're watching it and being like, oh, yeah, Spielberg was a master from day one. And I'm just really curious, like, what were some things you noticed on this watch through that were like little directorial things that you want to call out? I think that the scene when they are taking the ferry over to, like, stop the kids from doing their their Boy Scout badge yep. of swimming. I just love that ferry shot. Like, he just sits the camera in the corner of the ferry and lets the background move, and the way he moves the actors as they have this discussion is just in insanely clever, and it allows there to be movement and a, a, a dynamic sense to the scene, and yet all the characters are staying in one spot. I, I just, I don't think I've seen many shots like that in all the movies we've watched. I think for me, it was, it was, Realizing that even from the beginning, Spielberg and John Williams had such a great understanding for how sound needs to be used in a movie. And it's very clear, like I bought the Blu-ray for this movie. I was watching it last night and it's very clear that they have like redone the sound mix on this movie. Like there's a lot of extra fully sounds going on and stuff. But 
I imagine that even in the original like mix, what stands out to me is like they know when to bring the score in and when for it to be completely silent. Mm-hmm. And and it's so much more terrifying because every single time the shark pulls something under the water, Spielberg says, we're going to sit here and you're going to watch this perfectly tranquil waves going by, knowing that like this demonic presence is lurking underneath them. And it is yeah. so much more unsettling. Like the the cold open of this movie with the girl getting eaten by the shark is still one of the most effective sequences in all of cinema because like she is screaming bloody murder and you get that last like, God, please help. Boom. And she's under the water and there's just nothing else except the sound of the buoy, like the bell on the buoy going back and forth. It's super chilling. Don't forget the uh, drunk boy who was chasing her going I'm not drunk. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> no, Bob, I'm with you, man. That opening scene, it, it really sets the tone for the entire film. And I think that a lot more directors should take note on like how to open a horror movie from Spielberg and, and Jaws. Yeah. And I keep bringing up the idea of like the production of this movie and the impact of this movie because it, I mean, it is so tied to the film itself. Like you really can't divorce the backstory of the movie and the impact that it had from the way this movie is cut together and the way that it plays out. Like the rhythm of this movie, it's one of the first films that I would say truly feels like a modern movie. And uh, I, I listened to this this movie podcast where they really don't go any farther back than like The Godfather, I think, is the farthest back they've ever gone. And and the host of that show talks a lot about modern movies and how The Godfather was kind of the first one that felt modern. I would say Jaws is right there, too, because we have just copied the template of this movie for almost 50 years. And it is it's such a watershed moment in the history of movies that. Like, I really can't think of many other movies that have had the impact that this movie had. Like, Citizen Kane kind of did, not in terms of, like, box office, but in terms of how it shaped movies after it. The Godfather kind of did. But then this movie, like, it not only changes how movies were made, it changed how movies were consumed. And in a lot of ways, this might be the most important movie ever made. And I think that's almost more interesting to talk about than the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have the phenomenon that is Star Wars two years later without Jaws. No, not like, at all. You don't have you don't have a a public that is ready, you know, in the summer to go see a a movie in the droves that they do for Star Wars. So yeah, I, Bob, I'm with you. I think that this movie has shaped so much of cinema that you you can't not have it up there as one of the greatest movies of all time. But it's like you said, even if the movie itself isn't actually perfect, it's it just changed so much about how movies were thought of by the public as well as by filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And, and like that is a that is a feat. That is an accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, like this movie caught a lot of crap retroactively, too, because it started the trend of the summer blockbuster. It started the Star Wars and these like giant mega movies every summer. But, you know, when Spielberg and Lucas were coming up, like they wanted to make movies that reminded people and and themselves of the movies they went to see as kids. They wanted like throwbacks to old Hollywood and they wanted it to feel kind of cheesy and they wanted it to feel kind of fake 
because that's how movies are. Like the artifice is part of the whole thing. And Spielberg was seen as kind of disrupting this whole movement that had been happening in 1970s cinema. And Brad, we've done like a whole mini series on 70s cinema on this podcast. But like, you know, the Coppola's of the world and and the Sidney Lumet's, you know, you've got movies like The Godfather and you've got Dog Day Afternoon, these these small kind of character studies that much more gritty. The American independent cinema movement was thriving. And then Jaws comes and wipes everything else out and it sets movie going on a completely different course. And by the time you get to the 1980s, like everything is like super corporatized and they're only shooting for like big budget movies. And so in a lot of ways, like Jaws was kind of pinned as the movie that ruined movies. But I mean, you know, it's not totally fair because what Spielberg is doing here as a filmmaker is so much more like above and beyond what you see with, I think, modern blockbusters, which are really cookie cutter and kind of cut and paste. So, I mean, like it's a both and it's it's our first major introduction to the person who would become the most important filmmaker of the 20th century. And it also kind of is the movie that gave us the giant IP driven movie landscape that we have now. It's really interesting that it has a foot in both of those camps. Bob, I think with all that being said, I think it is time to get into our final scores. What what are you thinking for Jaws, a Titanic film in the in the history of cinema? Oh, you saying that right now just made me think, what if you set a movie in like the aftermath of the Titanic sinking and it's just like sharks eating the people <laughs> in the water after Titanic? You it, and it the movie starts with Rose letting go of Jack, and then, and then him you just see, getting you see him trucked by by a yes. great white. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in, dude. Hundred oh, percent. Let's do it. All right. Here's here's how I feel about Jaws, and we'll 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 get more into comparisons when we do Jurassic Park in a couple of weeks here. But I admire this movie more than I enjoy it, and it's still enjoyable as hell. But I think this is like a nine out of 10. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people think it's a perfectly constructed movie, and I can certainly appreciate why people think that. But for me, it's just like there's some weird rhythmic issues with it, especially in the second half, the way the shark is killed. And then immediately they're like, yeah, you know, Quentin didn't make it. But uh, hey, let's go back to shore now. It just kind of seems it just kind of seems like they gloss over certain beats of the story. Spielberg had this perfected by the time he gets to Jurassic Park. And so I think especially in comparison to that, it's just not quite as good, but it is a nine out of 10 for me. I'm right there with you, Bob. Nine out of 10. I think this is just incredibly fun to watch. I think that the first half of the movie, it's it is really fun to watch you know, Scheider try to fight off these islanders who are more worried about kids karate chopping the top off of his his fence than people dying out out in the water. Like, it's darkly funny to watch. And then the second half of the movie is just, it's thrilling and fun, and there's a little bit of fat on it that I'd cut off, but it, it's an incredibly fun movie. So yeah, I, I'm with you, man. Phenomenal movie. Changed the course of cinema. For me, it's a 9 out of 10. All right, Brad, I'm going to let you pick the next movie in our Spielberg lineup. So we've got Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is the next movie that Spielberg makes in 77. We've got Raiders of the Lost Ark, 81, which is the one that kind of puts him back on track. 
And then we've got Jurassic Park. Do you want to dive right into Jurassic Park and do the direct comparison? Or do you think we need some buffer in between? Honestly, I think we should do them in the order that they came out. I, I think we should go Close Encounters next, jump into Raiders, and then finish with, you know, one of the most famous movies of all time. Let's do it, man. All right, so we will be back next week talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.